All right, I'm going to... I'm going to once again try to tackle hard subjects. The subject of sexuality as we continue to look at it. I don't have something ready in the book of Mark, and we will go back to Mark as I get things ready to present. In the meanwhile, I got a lot of notes on the subject of biblical sexuality, and we're going to continue to talk about them. Why? Because this is important. I, one preacher, I think is J.D. Greer, said God whispers about sexual sins but screams about sins with greed. And that's not true. The Bible has a ton to say about sexual sins. In fact, one-fifth of the commandments deal specifically with these of the Ten Commandments, and much of the New Testament, much of the Old Testament deal with this. Why am... Let's go ahead and read a text. And no matter where I stand, I'm getting blinded by the sun. I'm going to sit there. All right. John four twenty three. The hour comes and now is when the true worshipers of when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, why am I reading this text? I'm reading this text because we're coming, to, uh, as we talk about sexuality, we've been dealing, well, we dealt, first of all, with what sex, sex is. It's a creature of God. It's a creation of God over which He is Lord. And there is no Lord beside Him in any point of His creation. So when we talk about sex, we're taught we have to talk about it under the auspices of Him being Lord, that He defines, He tells us what is right and what is wrong. He makes commands, and we are not free to reinterpret those things. And people are literally stumbling over this truth today, and most of the people that are quote-unquote deconstructing, I will say that again, all of the people I know of that are deconstructing from their faith and abandoning the Christian faith, or what the Bible says apostatizing in our culture, this becomes the issue for which they are leaving. I don't like what the Bible says says about sexuality. That's what bottom line, you will read it, and that's what they'll say. And you and I are stumbling all around this issue as well. We don't want to talk about it <laughs> because it's hard to talk about. But everyone in this room at some point in mind, at time, 
has been guilty of sexual sins, either here or in the real world. We stumble. We, 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 are, we struggle. And this is the issue that's going to cause us problems. If we don't know how to talk about this issue, we're not going to be able to minister to our culture who is obsessed with it, ate up with it. And how are you going to give the gospel when this is the thing that you hear the moment you start talking about the gospel and you're trying to talk to them about Jesus and all they hear is, this person's a bigot. We have to know what we believe. And what we believe starts with this. It's a creature created by God and He's its Lord. It's a creation and God is Lord over it. We talked about we talked about um, ideas of egalitarianism, and I've just used that term as a broad umbrella. This idea that there is no distinctions uh, between uh, there there are no sexual distinctions at all to be made. And we talked about some of the reasons why that is, the rise of material philosophy, uh, Darwinism, uh, science fiction, <laughs> things of that nature, that, is, that, 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 has, that has created this, this illusion that there are no real differences in things. And when we're talking about sexuality, we're talking about God being Lord over it and creating the distinctions that truly do exist. In the very first chapter of Genesis, what was He doing? If you were to read the Septuagint, it says it clearly. Uh, maison, put up between this and that. Whether that's land and sea or night and day, darkness and light. And we have all these, all these distinctions made in the things that God has created. Why? Because He's Lord and He created them male and female. And we say those distinctions aren't real. And we talked about last time... Uh, was it two weeks ago? We talked about last time we breached this subject, how people try to argue against this theologically, where they will take um, various texts like they're in, in Christ there is neither male nor female and say, aha, see, God no longer wants us to make any distinctions whatsoever. And I want to get back to that, but I want to bring this to a discussion of theology proper, and I'm going to talk about something that is permeating our culture. And I'm not going to talk about it politically. Critical theory. Specifically in this instance, what is called queer theory. And I want to talk about it, how it is affecting the doctrine of God. See, people will take this scripture right here and say God is a spirit. They will ignore what the rest of the verse says, that we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There is a 
truth that was given, that is revealed, that makes these makes distinctions about, about God, that tells truth about God, and that is the way we must approach God. But they will only zero in on these things where it says, God is a spirit, or in John chapter 5, God does not have a shape. And they will wrongly say that we can make of God whatever we choose. And you have people in churches today that are defining God however they wish to define God. Calling God, uh, calling God this or that and saying that there are no distinctions in God. There is no truth. And what, what is queer theory? And I'm not going to talk directly about queer theory today, but I want to deal with how it affects our theology, how it affects how we view God, or at least how churches, how even people who call themselves Christians are speaking about God. Queer theory simply says that, and what is queer theory? It's just Marxism applied to gender and sexuality. That's all it is. Marxism is, is this idea that there are classes, all right? And there shouldn't be. There all should be one, <laughs> egalitarian but there are classes there is a dominant class and there 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 is an oppressor class and there is an oppressed class and and uh, that's been applied to almost everything in our culture we are now a marxist culture that sees everything in that view queer theory is simply this idea that all teaching about sexual distinctions is not inherent, and to, to speaking theologically, is not inherent in, the, in God or given from God. It is the oppressor class, the dominant class, forcing their contrived truths on others. So, I'm not going to talk directly about that theory, but that is the underlying lens that people are coming to the Bible with and now trying to speak about God with. See, egalitarianism, that's the idea that there are no distinctions between things, not only attempts to declare that God is not distinct from His creation, Ultimately, as we go into this theology of people that hold this, you'll find them more and more naturalist and more and more involved in, in, in New Age ideas that are foreign to the Scriptures. But they want to get the idea that God is not out there some, somewhere, that God is not above the creation, but God's here. They will say, I heard a prayer uh, a very blasphemous prayer in which he says, God is you, and God, they were praying to God, and they said, God is you, and God is me, and God is, God, God is this, and God is that, and God is this opposite, and that opposite, and, and, the, and, and a very new age way of looking at God. And, and so it not only wants to take away those distinctions, it also wants to take away this God making truth known in the world. And, this, and there's a theological way in, this, in which this is a fact. And I feel really bad that I'm talking heavily about theology all day today, and I hope I'm not wearing you all out. Uh, but, but it's good for us to talk about. Um, I, I've already offended some of the sensibilities of those that may hold this view, 
by speaking of God as Him. All right, here let's get into the controversy. I've used the pronoun about God. And they say, that's me perpetuating the oppressor class ideology on everyone else by calling God Him. Or Him, I, I, talk, so I talk about God by saying, He has made Himself known. And that offends the distinction offends in its distinction of God as God and not as the same as all else, and it offends by gendering God. And they will say right here, God is spirit. God is not male or female. I'll say you're right. So is that is this language right here problematic? Is this the patriarchy? Y'all ever hear that term? Patriarchy? You know what that means? Christianity. They say they want to bring down the patriarchy. They say they want, that's really just a buzzword for I want to bring down Christianity. Because this is the way Christians have spoken. Why would I speak of God in a gender terminology? Does God have a gender? And if so, or if not, what does it teach us about sexuality as it exists in this world? It's important to note that morality or moral choices happen in the context of moral law. That it relates to how things are in context in which the Lord created them outside and distinct from Himself. So, what's right and wrong has to do with the fact that God is God and He is not this creation. He's, we're not God and we don't decide right and wrong. God has already decided that. Showing that God is not like His creation does not free us from moral obligations. Ah, God is a spirit, so therefore here in this world there's neither male nor, there are, there's neither male nor female. <laughs> there's no sexual distinctions whatsoever. There are no moral laws anymore because God is a spirit. That's how they would present it as if this frees them from all moral boundaries, as if He is not Lord, as if He is not spoken, as if He has not said anything about, like, thou shalt not commit adultery, as if He has never said those things. Therefore, the line of thought that says God is a spirit and therefore is neither male nor female, and this means that we also should have no sexual distinctions, it's foolish. It's an improper argument. It is true that God indeed is a spirit. What does that mean? God is a spirit. What does it mean? It means He is not a physical reality. He is not panentheistic, that this is part of the reality of God. No, this is outside of God. This is distinct from God. I am distinct from God. You are distinct because you're not God. And neither is the chair, and neither is the grass, or the trees, or anything else. It's not. He doesn't have a physical reality. God is not, in other words, sexual. 
and does not follow that this sweeps away all sexual distinctions. They are distinct because of the creator-creature distinction that He created, not just a blob of mass of Genesis 1-2, but a design in the world. Purpose in the world was given by God. So it doesn't follow that if God is a spirit that there are no distinctions in what He has created. God created the distinctions of sexuality. In those distinctions, He's Lord. And for us to say, well, I think I can choose to do something else or be something else is for me to say, He's not Lord. The morality of sexuality comes from Him being Lord over what He has created. Sexual morality is not based on the ontology of God as God, but it's based on the lordship of God as He's revealed truth. That's epistemology if you want to get into the philosophy of it. As He is given purpose, that's teleology, of the things that He has made. In other words... Our moral obligations rise no higher than what God has made known. What should I do? Well, I just said it a second before we even started. Uh, you want to know what the word of God, what the will of God is? You need to know the word of God. So, what God has made known to us regarding nature and the purposes of the things He has created, for instance. God has set boundaries for what I can do with my hands. Can we all agree with that? So, I, I can, God created these hands. Does God have hands? No, seriously, does God have hands? Does He have physical hands? Christ did, of course. But we have to talk about God taking on human nature in order for us to say He has physical hands. Does God have physical hands? No. He doesn't. All right? But I do. And these hands are real. And God governs what I can do with them. For instance, I should work with my hands. I should do honest work with my hands. I should do kind things. You were just coughing. (laughs) Sorry. I should should do kind, benevolent things. With my hands. I should give with my hands to those that need. What I should not do is steal with my hands or kill with my hands, right? But what I cannot do ideologically is I cannot say, well, since God doesn't have hands, I don't have hands either. You see the folly of the argument, right? Or since God doesn't have hands, then I'm free to do with my hands whatever I please. He's not made anything known. I know no, this, this, this sounds silly, but this is really the way people were thinking. Since God, since God is a spirit and not a sexual being, then sexuality doesn't exist. Or if God, God is a spirit and not in any way any kind of sexual being, then I can do whatever I want sexually and be whatever I want sexually. That's the same argument. That's really the argument that... That, that they are producing out of what they believe to be sound theology. But you can't apply it anywhere else in theology. 
I heard one Christian philosopher say that we all have a sex because God had a sex, and that's wrong. That is a very misleading statement. God is not sexual in the sense that we are. Mormonism has a sexual God. They do. Anybody know anything about Mormonism? They believe Adam was God. <laughs> All right? And, uh, and things of that nature. They, they, they believe God had a real physical body. Not via the incarnation, but God was physical. Uh, the pagans believe in a physical and physical gods. You'd read about Zeus. You'd read about these. Yeah, uh, 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 Zeus uh, and 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 they were they were depraved in their practice uh, uh, of sexuality. Uh, Zeus uh, committed adultery against Hera with Io and things of that nature, and produced this this demigod or whatever. And and we cannot think of God in those terms. But here's how do we do think of God? God is life. And God is life-giving. Therefore, by analogy, you and I, but you and I, when we talk about things like procreation and things like that, we can talk about that as being an analogy of the life-giving of God. Uh, God is a spirit, though. He doesn't have a physical body. You remember Jesus Christ? He he uh, he resurrected. He came down and he sat and and uh, and they believed him to be a spirit. And he says, "Touch me." Does a spirit does a spirit have hands? Give me some fish and eat, and a honeycomb. That's to prove he wasn't a spirit. God's not that. You and this is very important. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 through 20 says, We never saw a shape of God. God doesn't have a physical shape. So therefore, we're not reducing God to a little idol and said, This is God. That's why we don't have graven images of God, because that's not God. I hope I'm making sense. People who teach such things about God... Of having physicality of any 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 way, shape, and form, we're not talking about the God of the Bible. The one true God is not like these things, and He's not like Zeus or 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 Hera or Athena, and He's not like like these depraved creatures. But what is God? God is personal, or better yet, He's super personal. The Trinity, right? containing in himself community and unity in the Trinity. And therefore, he speaks of himself as personal. God uses personal pronouns about himself. He speaks with personal pronouns. God and those to whom he God revealed, the writers of the Scriptures, how do they speak of God? And does it mean anything? For instance, when God is when pronouns are used about God, he's called him. Here's these, these are pronouns. Big debate today about pronouns. If we believe the scriptures are written, every time a pronoun is used of God, it's used in the masculine. And then there's nouns. 
What are some nouns that are used of God? How about uh, father? Son? King? What do all those have in common? They're masculine. Do they have meaning? Now I've got to move over here to get out of the sunlight. <laughs> Do they mean anything? Of course they mean something. But what does queer theory do? It comes and says, this is meaningless. These don't mean anything. When we start trying to study the Bible through that lens, we say those are meaningless. The, uh, for instance, the Jews of old in the book of Jeremiah worshipped not the king of heaven that David talked about. They worshipped the queen of heaven. And we have people now standing up in churches and say, we worship the divine feminine. And they believe they're talking about the God of the Bible. What do we have here? Well, we know that if God is spirit, God is not physical. What they're saying is partly right. And the thing about things that are lies is something can still be a lie and have a lot of truth in it, right? God is not a physical reality. So he's not male in the sense that you and me are male. Or I mean, those of you that are male, you know what I mean. So... So they're not ontological truths. When we're using him or father or son, they're not ontological truths in, the, in and of themselves, but they are theological truths. They're what God has revealed himself by. God had the writers of the Bible call him him. God revealed himself as father that's a theological truth. Not a biological truth, but a theological truth. In the same way we speak, we, we, we have what's in the Bible what's called anthropomorphisms. That's a big word, right? What does it mean? Uh, anthro means man. Morphisms means to change into something where we're speaking, we're using words that change the idea of God into terms that we can understand about us. For instance, it says God has hands. Uh, the, hand, the hand of God doing this, the arm of God doing this. The, uh, uh, and, and, what, what, and these are teaching theological truths about God. They're not saying God literally is, has physical arms in heaven and, and, and things like that. But, but they, they teach theological truths. We speak of him having hands. He has ability. In fact, he has all ability. That's why we use the term omnipotent. Uh, he has arms, he that speaks of his power, he has eyes, he has ears, that speaks of his knowledge. And I like what, I like what, uh, when, when, uh, when Dr. Martin uh, was uh, talking about Mormonism, he said, and they were talking about the, the, and Mormons would take this idea that he has ears and eyes and arms and hands, and they say, see, that's a physical God. 
uh, denying what the scripture said that you and I just read. And it says, well, you need to keep reading because it also says he has wings and feathers. (laughs) So are we to picture God as a bird now? Uh, uh, Or or, or Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Do we literally believe that he is? No, we, we, we see there's analogy there. There's theological truth, not biological truth being told. That's what's called anthropomorphism. However, this becomes a point of controversy when when people are looking at it through the lens, when people come to the Bible and they deconstruct the Bible and look through it through the lens of queer theory. Procreation is an imperfect picture of God. Let's talk about God. You know, there are times in the Bible where other analogies are given. Gendered language is meant to be used to speak true of reality, not what may be or what one wishes to be. Yet God is exclusively described as himself, masculine gendered nouns and pronouns. And the leap is then made that if God is not biologically sexual, then that gender language is meaningless. That's what their argument is. Or at best, they're they're, they're relics of the patriarchy. The only reason it's translated to him is because it's a relic of the patriarchy. And we talk talk about God as the divine father instead of the divine mother as patriarchy. Um, Then a further leap is made that we we should abolish all gendered language about God and about his creation. The assumed truth is that all such language is without meaning. And that's an error. When we speak of God being Father, that's meaningful. Where does gender and sexuality come from? Is is it a reality in God? Obviously not if God is spirit, but God is... It does teach us something about God. God is eternal and does not need to do anything to continue on. He is that He is. That's what we call God. He says, I am that I am. Is that air still blowing? Is, can you turn them completely off for me? Because I'm like burning up. So, He says, I am that I am. He has neither come to be, was produced by something else outside of himself, nor will there be any God produced after him as a sense of becoming. So uh, so the uh, Mormons say, well, we're becoming God. No, we're not. Uh, In that sense, God is not the product of generational activity or producing further generations after him. God is is simply he is. The pagan gods were described as being produced by generations before them and themselves producing gods after them, and the same is true of all polytheistic schemes. However, gendered truths find their ground in God. God has eternally begot His Son. When did He become a father? From all eternity He was a father, and from all eternity the Son was begotten. Uh, and was brought forth. When we look at the eternal reality of God, as God has made it known to us, we see the love of a father who has his, his son eternally in his bosom. 
He has made himself known in that familiar context a family, in a reciprocal relationship. Thus, we see the love and nurture of God. God is saying something. When, when Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, he was teaching us to see a truth about God that was important. So God's not physical. He does not procreate physically. I need to hurry up. The bells are ringing and, and I'm putting people to sleep. <laughs> but I think this is important for us to be able to talk about, uh, talk about this correctly. He does not, we don't believe in a Mormon God that procreates. He's different from his creation. But God is the ground of the concept of bringing forth. God is the ground of the concept of nurturing. The ground of the idea of a father is the ideal of the created or he's the ideal of the created order in which he is created. We are in process of generation. God is not in that process. He's the ground of it. We came, for, we came through the order that he created. We produce further generations. We once were not, and those that will come from us are not yet. Can't say that about God, but we are part of that life-giving of God. And what happens in that, in that order speaks of the truths of God. So God has brought outside of himself all physical reality. We are all, in this sense... Well, what Paul says, we're the offspring of God. Acts 17, 28. God as Lord of all creation begot. How, does we, how do we describe creation? Going back to Luke 3, it says, uh, and Seth, uh, Seth was begotten by Adam, was begot, uh, Seth was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. God brought forth the life into this world and cares, and nurtures, and disciplines. What do we learn about God as Father? Well, we learn that He corrects and loves His children. We had fathers after the flesh, Hebrews chapter 12, that for a few days would chasten us after, our own, after their own pleasure. But how much more will the God of all spirits correct us? And then it goes on and talks about the glory of His correction in our lives. What a wonderful Father we have. Well, uh, I was blessed with a, with a great father, but there is no great, he was a great father in the fact that he was an example of the father that was in heaven. People say, well, we shouldn't. I ran into this guy once at, the, at a Christian school, for instance. I was teaching there. And what he, was, what he said was, uh, I no longer talk about God as being the father because some people don't have a good father at home and that triggers them or... What is he doing? He's refusing to talk about God in the terms that God has revealed of himself. He is denying the richness of theological truth to the people that he is speaking to, all in the name of, well, I don't want to offend. You don't deny these truths without denying truths about God and things that he really wanted us to to know. Now, can we point to things in the scriptures where we have other analogies of God? Uh, by, by the way, um, all that is good in both sexes are found found in the ground found grounded in the reality of God, uh, especially when it comes to God's covenant people. For instance, 
God in Deuteronomy 2.18, Isaiah 42.14, 66.13 talks about himself as, a, as if he was a nursing mother carrying his people. And he talked about himself in Psalm 91.4 and Matthew 23.37 as, as, being, as being like a hen that gathers her chicks under his wings. There is a nurturing reality and a ground of reality in both man, men and women that finds who they are by understanding God. And he relates to the saved as a father that gives for his children, Matthew 7, uh, 11. There are even greater truths than these. God is neither male nor female, but is the ground of all that is good in each. And each may find a reference point of morality and goodness in him by the image of God that in which they were created. What makes a female a female? Well, according to society right now, it would be things like makeup and high heels and poofy hair, none of which is true, or, or some kind of societal expectation that they're supposed to do this and be this and that. Um, not a lot of room for... Uh, for the concept of tomboy anymore. But what makes a female a female is the image of God in which they are created. And they can find their reference point for who they are in God. And so it is for the man. Um, God created the female as female to exhibit his glory in a specific way. And it has nothing to do with what has been reduced to. Uh, makeup and fashion and and uh, and and mannerisms and and things of that nature, and not on the truth of God. God created the male as male to exhibit His glory in a different way, and it's in that that He decided to reveal truths about Himself, especially truths about the gospel. How does this relate to the gospel? In the creation account, the male is created different. And it becomes a type of what God himself would do in salvation. We see the truth in Christ. It is the man that left his father representative of him leaving his father and mother in order to cleave to his bride in marriage, rescuing his people for himself, to be one with them, bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. Christ and His bride is the theological truth that is brought to bear in the terms of sexuality. And we understand by the things that God has created the gospel. So is it important that we call Him Son, that we call Him the bridegroom, that we call Him, these, these, call him by how He is revealed? Yes, it is important, absolutely important for us to speak of God in the way that He has revealed Himself to be. Egalitarianism causes us to lose the distinctions that make understanding the gospel truths possible. What's at stake? The gospel. That's what's at stake. Oh, what's the harm in, in, in allowing these theologians to, to, to reconstruct the scripture and look at the scripture in the lens of queer theory? What's at stake? The gospel's at stake. How do I understand these truths? I understand these truths in the distinctions God made. And in that context, he speaks of himself. 
I hope this makes sense. Even though we know that God is spirit, He is not flesh and bone like you, ha- you, you and I have. Even though we know that God is the basis of all true virtues of sexuality, both in the male and in the female, and their image springing them in Him, can we consider the masculine of terms of God to be superfluous? No. Can we say, these are without significance? No. They have real significance. They are theological truth. And that's why I I can't bow in prayer to someone who says, "I, I believe in the God of the Bible, but I believe God is the divine feminine. I can't do it because I'm now speaking of God outside of His revelation. I'm not making His revelation my basis for how I speak about Him, for what I say is true about Him. There is theological truth. We are not God. And our reality is determined by Him and not by ourselves. We are We are what we are as far as our being and our purpose by His sovereign rule and as an expression of His will. We we cannot be too emphatic about this. We are not free to define God how we please any more than we're free to define ourselves. And since we live in a world where people want to define themselves outside of God, we also live in a world where they want to define God according to their own faulty reasoning. But the truth is simply this. He is Lord. He defines the terms he is free to define himself. He, is, he has the freedom to define himself and, can, and we have no right to come by and say, no, that's not, these are, this is just patriarchy. No, this is God's revelation. His self-revelation. And for us to say any different is us to say that we're Lord and not Him. My point is simply this as I close and I've kept... I'm like Pharaoh who's kept God's people too long, right? (laughs) Would not let let God's people go. My point is this. He's declared who he is in the terms that he wants us to know, in the terms of theological truths about himself. And we cannot deny those without knocking the entire structure of the gospel that saves us out from under us. And there is a reason why the deconstruction movement, which always, in the, which always ultimately has people apostatizing from the faith, leaving the faith, has this as their ground. Leaving the faith begins with us saying, I think I can define this for myself and not rely wholly on what God has said. That's the old lie of the serpent. Ye shall be as gods. 
We don't determine moral truth. He alone does. We don't determine... We can speak rightly and, pra- uh, and practice rightly in the realm of sexuality only when we're submitted to Him as Lord. The truth of sexuality is determined by God through what He created and what He has revealed about Himself and about us. When we bring an authority independent of God into the subject, we challenge the authority of the one that rules here. I want to go back to this analogy. What are we doing? We are coming into this land. We are planting this flag and saying, this is mine. I rule this. But the land actually belongs to the Lord, to the great king. And we are not sovereign there. He is. When we approach the subject of sexuality, it's no different. He made this. He rules over it. He has declared what it is. He has declared truths that are related to it about himself. And for us to say, no, this is my country. I rule here is for us to be the greatest of rebels. And that's all. Next time we'll talk next time we talk about the subject, we're going to talk about sex and the law. Is it okay for us to uh, uh, well, people will say, well, you talk about what the law says about sexuality, the rules here, but yet you're wearing uh, two different kinds of fibers in your shirt, and the law condemns that. What do we say to that? What does, how does the law relate to the Christian in this matter? And we've got to answer some of those objections. All right, let's, let's stand and be dismissed. Let's, uh, let's, say, let's sing the uh, doxology. <laughs>